This week's podcast is brought to you by Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so that learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where each week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor at EdSurge. In a fifth grade classroom at Monroe Elementary School near Minneapolis, a teacher named Thaddeus White was recently celebrated, while his class of smiling students and a camera crew looked on. Okay, it's COVID, so everyone is in masks, but you can still tell they're all smiling because someone is presenting this teacher with one of those giant ceremonial checks. You know, as if he had just won a sweepstakes. We would like to present you with this $50,000 check. This isn't a story about a sweepstakes, but he did overcome some huge odds to become a teacher. That's because he is one of only 2% of the teachers in America who are black and male. And in fact, only half a percent of all teachers in Minnesota fit that description. This money here is to go to help you alleviate the student loan debt that you've accumulated to get to a point where you can have impact on these young kids' lives. The group giving him this check is called Black Men Teach. And the nonprofit has been giving other checks like this recently and trying some other approaches to increase the number of black men in the teaching force. We'll hear more about this approach later in the episode. Our guest today is the person who presented that giant check, Marcus Flynn. Flynn is also a black man teaching. He teaches part-time at a school in Minneapolis. And he's also the executive director of Black Men Teach, which is based here in the Twin Cities. As I talked to Flynn, I realized that he chose Minnesota for a very specific reason. I happen to live here in the Twin Cities, too. I live in St. Paul. And diversity and education has been a topic here for a long time. In fact, a couple of years ago, a different nonprofit bought a billboard along a major highway, not far from the school where this check was given out, highlighting the fact that even though Minnesota is known for high-quality schools, it's also known as a place that's doing a terrible job teaching children of color. The billboard, which was in giant text that you could read as you're going by at 60 miles an hour, the billboard read, Minnesota schools are worst in the nation for our students of color. Yeah, so I heard about the billboard. I've never seen it. Actually, the, yeah. my first day of teaching, I showed my students. And I teach at a school that's probably 99% student of color. And I was doing an introduction to myself and told them where I'm from, blah, 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 blah. But I said, this is why I'm here. I'm like, this is what it says. Like, y'all believe that? I'm like, what does this message say? Is it, what does it say about you all? What do they think? What do people think when they see this? Um, and really, it's about the school system, not the individuals. But I wanted to know. I'm like, this, this, this is really why I'm here. Like, this is what people are saying, that these schools are the worst for students that look like you all. How are we going to work together to change that narrative, make sure that that's not us? They're not talking about us. How do we change that? This is one of the very first conversations I had with my kids. What'd they say? How'd they react? I mean, it's the first day and they don't know me at all. So the conversation would be completely different if I had it with like the students I have right now at this moment. They'd be like, what? Mr. Flynn, how? No way. They're wrong. We're going to teach them. We're so. But at the time they were like, yeah, that, that says, uh, you know, it's not, not, not good. And then we're just having a conversation. I'm like, is this true? 
can y'all not learn? Is is that what that says? And they're like, of course not, and all that. But yeah, the conversation will look entirely different after they know who I am. And this is the first person, like, who is this guy? I'm talking about this stuff. To Flynn, as we'll see when we get to know more about this guy, this issue of the lack of diversity of American teachers is about more than just money. It's also about the culture of schools. I started my conversation by asking Flynn how he wound up here in Minnesota and as a teacher and an advocate. So I don't have a traditional path in education. Um, Went to school to study basically health sciences and then went to graduate school to be an epidemiologist. I wanted to study what's called physical activity epidemiology. It's because at the time, and and still somewhat like now, I thought the most impactful health science outside of directly practicing medicine was epidemiology because you understand the longitudinal relationships between exposures and outcomes and how do you create interventions to kind of mediate those relationships if they're negative and so that's what I wanted to do and you know I had a mentor who told me that if you're able to intersect your passion and talent that's how you find your purpose and so that was something that was really big for me because I thought my path based on my undergraduate experience was to go into this public health type program and then get a PhD mm-hmm. in epidemiology, studying the social determinants of health, really focusing in on health disparities and inequities. And so I thought I was on track, but I wanted to make sure I was actually on that, on the right trajectory for myself. So I started doing a lot of reflection around this idea of what is my purpose. And, you know, early in the process, I was like, you know, epi isn't it. Um, and the tough part was, what is? What is it? And m- most of what I thought of was within this realm of health, some science, something STEM related, because that's what I had been studying for the past basically five years at the time. But I felt like to really do myself justice, I had to eliminate all of that <clears throat> and go into it and think, okay, I know my passions, I know my skill set pretty well. What's the best intersection of these things, my values, all of that, that and highlight and put it, my skill set at the forefront. And I spent a long time thinking about that. And this idea of being a school principal actually came to my mind. I wanted to lead, a, went to be in education, wanted to lead and be able to set an infrastructure, have a vision and see it manifest. And... <clears throat> I think part of what helped me think about this is because I was studying epidemiology. So I'm looking at these social implications and the relationship to health. But I'm always seeing that education is something that's controlled for. It's a confounded variable. And so in the back of my mind, I kept telling me that education is really foundational. And started looking into education studies and saw some of the most compelling statistics I've ever seen in any field. And I saw studies that said things like, if you have one black teacher by the third grade, black student is 13% more likely to enroll in college at a second, 32% more likely. One black teacher between third and fifth grade, poorest black boys in that study, 39% less likely to drop out of high school. So significant long-term impacts, right? And that's an epi, that's what we're looking for. How do you have an intervention that has lasting longitudinal effects? And so for me, um, seeing that, and also having the same at the same time, this realization, I think my skill set really fits well in this because I want to move away from research and be more of a practitioner, be on the ground, actually seeing the impact and seeing its manifestations. 
And so decided to take a leap of faith. If I was like, if I want to be a school principal, I got to go in the classroom first. Found an alternative entry program. And then actually the next question from there was where? And so at the time, I think my top priority was going somewhere where it didn't snow. I think that was number one. It was like, how can I get away from the snow at all costs? Wait, because you grew up where? You grew up with snow or without snow? Chicago. Yeah, I experienced the polar vortex and I was like, I'm done. Never yeah. again. No more. But, you know, Minnesota, I wanted to do my due diligence and look everywhere. So I came to I started looking at Minnesota relatively late. But when I looked at Minnesota, it just made sense. Um, and again, I thought of it from like this epi perspective. Right. How do you moderate relationships? So I saw I don't know what I looked at, but it had the ranking of the best public education school systems in the country. And number two was Minnesota. It was Massachusetts and Minnesota. I also saw something, a list of like one of those Forbes lists. And it was like best places to teach. Number two was Minnesota. But the most important piece, Minnesota ranked number two on the list of largest black white education achievement gaps. And my interest in education really, really always revolved. I mean, my interest in anything professionally revolved around equity, specifically in the black community. How do you make and create more equitable conditions? And so... Minnesota now is this place that has this super strong infrastructure for education, right? Number two on the list, number two best place to teach. At the same time, you have some of the most pervasive inequities that explicitly manifest in education. And those two things, that paradox, right? Those things existing in parallel to me just was interesting. Because I'm like, if you're able to come in, of course, it's a very simplistic way to think of it, but be a part of the movement that's trying to mitigate that inequity. There's tremendous room for improvement because you have conditions that have you on whatever list this was, listed as one of the best public education systems in the country. And so that few other things started making me think, hmm, let me give Minnesota a little bit heavier consideration. After the break. How did the demographics of teachers get so lopsided? And how those giant checks are just one of the creative solutions being tried to make some change. Stay with us. You're reinventing education models in real time. The rise of distance and hybrid learning means staff and students are relying on your systems like never before. But you also need solutions that are simple to use, work together seamlessly, and are backed by world-class support. That's why educators everywhere trust Cisco. Cisco's purpose is to power an inclusive future for all. They securely connect students, teachers, and administrators, no matter where they are, so the learning never stops. Whether you're in schools, reimagining your campus, or providing secure remote access for distance learning, count on Cisco to help you every step of the way. Join Cisco at ISTE Live 2021 to build a bridge to the future of education together. Plus, attend three Cisco sessions and automatically receive a Cisco-branded coffee mug and be entered for your chance to win a pair of Apple AirPods. One winner will be chosen on Monday and Tuesday of the show. Valid for U.S. participants only. Learn more at cs.co slash 21 That's cs.co slash 21 Now back to the episode. Why do you think so few black men have gone into the field of teaching in recent times? Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, 
think there's a few things. I think one is the obvious thing. It's representation. And I think representation is really, really important, especially when you think about like subconscious messages that get sent to you over time and the implications that those things have. So if you think about it, who's the archetype for a teacher right now, right? If almost anybody, myself, we take my experience, your experience, we take probably the experience of everyone listening, we combine their teachers, put them in a blender, shook them up, and just brought, or even just picked one out of a hat and threw it out. What we're going to see is probably a middle-aged white woman. We think about identity on a spectrum. Who's at the end, opposite end of that spectrum? It's a 10-year-old black boy. Um... So you, you really don't see yourself represented at almost any level in numbers as you go through your K-12 experience. I think, two education, I call it like school-induced trauma. I think if you talk to almost any black man, they can give you an experience of something that stuck with them for a long time, that uh, like a very memorable, unpleasant experience that happened in school. And typically it's something that's like, I'm not going to say un unsolicited or unwarranted but it's like the consequence or whatever happened was far more substantial than whatever was the catalyst for it that makes sense like a punish a a kind of a punishment by some school judicial system that was way out of line with like way out of proportion to what happened yeah disproportionate and so i think everyone has that experience i have one my very first interaction with the police was what i when i was in fifth grade because they assumed i stole a bike that was mine it was your bike. Yeah, it was my bike. And it's like this coordinated effort between the school and the police department. Like they held me back, didn't tell me why. Then they just sent me out. Okay, you can go. And then it's like three police officers who are like trying to put me in a police car and take me um, to jail for stealing my bike. That's mine. And it's like in fifth grade, you're 10 years old. I got 10 year olds now. I see them every day. Um None of them could talk themselves out of that situation. And I was no different. (laughs) You know, like who's equipped at that point to be able to like diffuse a situation with three adult men who weren't intimidating you at that time. So it wasn't until my mom like came up there that the situation was uh, mitigated. But again, why am I even in that position? Why is no one even asking me, did I steal this bike? You know, and it's just things you question, especially being in the school now. Like, who, who, why the hell would you even do that? Like, I'm in a school now. And there's no way that if one of my students was accused of stealing a bike, I'm not asking them. Right? Especially something that's like a bike. It's not even like, not that, there's no license plate on it. It's not that specific. I had a red bike. Probably 60% of the audience listening had a red bike in fifth grade. It was nothing special about that thing. But that did not make you want to become a teacher. Nothing in my K-12 experience made me want to become a teacher. Not one experience. Even, I think back, I, I'm, some people say they don't have a favorite teacher. I had a favorite teacher. I had several teachers who I enjoyed. I never once, I didn't think about becoming a teacher until I was 23 years old. Yeah. Um, so I think, again, so representation, school-induced trauma, two barriers. Another one is the financial implications, especially when we're talking about black men in particular. You have to think about the gendered nation of teacher. My fifth grade students right now, you ask them, Mr. Flynn, is he rich? You're going to say, hell no. Mr. Flynn is a teacher. He's broke. <laughs> my kids will say that now. And it's part of it is because me and my kids have a good relationship, right? So they get to joke. Uh, so they're not like, you're broke. It's more like, Mr. Flynn, you're broke. 
but they already have it in their head that teaching is not a lucrative profession, right? And then you got young boys who society tells them, you are supposed to be a provider. What does a provider roughly equate to? Somebody who makes a lot of money, right? So you already have, at 10 years old, two things ingrained in your head. As a man, as a young boy who's becoming a man, you need to make a lot of money. What else? Teachers don't make a lot of money. How the hell do those two things go together? They just don't, right? So you already take that off the plate early on. Another thing, when you really think about it, teaching, so there's data out there right now that says for black people, teaching is not a fiscally responsible decision. Average starting salary for a teacher is $44,000 nationally. White education students, on average, come out with about $25,000 of debt. Right, 61% debt to income ratio is what we're talking about. Black students on average have substantially more debt. We're talking about an additional basically $25,000. Now we're talking about a little over $50,000 versus $44,000 starting salary income. So that debt to income ratio is about 120%. So it's hard to make that claim, especially too when we think about this. Median household income for our first generation students is about $38,000. Continuing generation students, about $100,000. Significant difference. If you're from a household that's $38,000, you're not thinking about going to college, being in a position to be fortunate enough to go to college, and then come out and doing something that's not going to recoup the money that you used to put into it if you're putting money in. 42% of black students, first generation. So you see how there's a lot of things that say this isn't it. And this long, like a long legacy of things you have to overcome. This is a systemic problem. So what you're describing is is cultural and systemic, like in every in you know in, in so many ways, with many different vectors, which makes it a so. Other than you teaching yourself, which is certainly something you're doing, what what is your you know what are the interventions that you think can make a difference to to change some of those things we just talked about. Yeah, so that's where Black Men Teach comes in. Like, when I think about putting this organization together, I was fortunate, I'm super fortunate to come into an organization that I walked into something that had, like, this really strong foundation set. Like I said, that impressive group of board of directors, some community coalitions and partnerships already established, but they really handed me the keys and said, create this vision. So I think about, the reason I know these things off the top of my head is because I sat down and thought about them and read about them and researched them. Because these are the main barriers that I see. And that's also in my personal story. These are things that come up as well. Um, I remember when I decided to be a teacher, I told my mom, she said, no, it's a bad idea. (laughs) And part of it was like the financial piece, right? Sure. Um, And so when we think about it, like these are things we actively have to manage and mitigate. So it's hard to go back. You can't change someone's K-12 experience. But what you can do is elucidate the, the impact that same race teachers have on their students. Get them to understand like, yes, you might have had this experience, but it doesn't mean that that's inherent to K-12. You got the right people in the right places. You make sure those things don't happen. And when those right people are in the right places, you get to see the outcome that it has long-term. So you talk about, I I think of it as generational impact. Like you have the opportunity to have influence on X many people over time. Like it's it's, it's, it's almost exponential. when you think about like as collective of what we could do as black men teach, there's this huge, huge potential impact that you get to be a part of, but also your own personal thing. You get to change lives and have fun. Um, 
the financial piece, I think that's huge. What I want to do, I'm in the process too of putting pen to paper to exactly, or like some maybe thumb to calculator to see exactly what these numbers look like. But I'm trying to make teaching fiscally responsible. I want to do two things, scholarships and loan forgiveness for our men. Or if they don't have debt, scholarships and retention bonuses to make it, again, a responsible decision. Right now, Black Men Teach, we've had six men that we've given effectively, I think, $50,000 to for debt forgiveness. Can I actually, I want to stop you for a second and come back to that because I I, I saw on your website, I watched the video where one of these um, teachers, um, Mr. Mr. White, got a $50,000 check. And so these are one of the six people, I imagine. He, um, so this is a moment where his, this $50,000 check covers the student loan you're talking about. This is what he had accumulated is in to trying to, you know, go through higher ed and, and get to where he is as a teacher. And then you're able to just kind of say, don't worry about it. That's, that's gone. Yep. As long like it's, it's almost like a retention tool, or at least to help, right? That's the plan. As long as you decide that you want to stay in education, we're going to show a commitment to you. And we're going to make sure that we alleviate that huge financial burden that's on your back. Because a lot of men, like a lot of black men, I think out of the six men that we support, maybe one of them, the six men we supported with loan forgiveness money, only one of them went to a traditional teacher prep program. And I've been trying to find the national data on this, but it's a, it's a challenge, but... A large percentage, just anecdotally, of black men in education don't decide to be a teacher at 17 and go into a teacher prep program. The the barriers are are almost too extreme. What it takes, it's kind of like what I walked you through. It's like this introspective self-reflection process. And if you're doing that at 15 years old, you're probably Gandhi. You don't need to be teaching. You need to go lead a movement, a social revolution, right? So... Everything that it takes to overcome these barriers and think through that process and understand the impact and the type of thing you want to do and your skill set, all that, it comes later in life for the most part. Right. And so there's very few black men who are going through these traditional teacher prep programs coming out and then don't going into the classroom. So a lot of us have to do alternative programs, degrees, maybe second degrees later in life. And so there's additional debt that comes with it. And you know, going into it, that it's not the most lucrative profession. So you have to take on this personal burden in order to have greater impact for your community. And I don't believe that that should be the dichotomy. I don't believe it's like, okay, I'm going to take this on, put this monkey on my back in order to really be liberatory or like to really have impact. That's just a lot to ask of anyone to say like you, you don't get to have like, resources in your life to take to do the thing you believe in like that that's a lot to ask that's that's more than most people would do yeah so it's like why are we asking people to do that does it make sense so what i do or what i want to do is say no you don't have to worry about that it's gonna be financially responsible it's actually gonna put you in a really good position and you have some impact too i just want to cut in here and play another piece of that video of mr white getting the giant check his loan forgiveness i do promise you guys i'm gonna be the berry Best teacher that I could possibly be for you guys. Appreciate it. This was awesome. It's definitely going to help me and my family, but it's also going to help my students because it's just one thing that I don't have to worry about moving forward. Wow. So the debt forgiveness, 
is you plan to do more of those uh, to add to that six people to help like get more people in a position where their their student debt is not a reason not to do it. Yeah, and it, it probably won't be fifty thousand dollars for every man we come across, right? Like I don't, it, that doesn't make sense. But part of it too is like we get in contact with these people young enough where they're going into a teacher prep program supported already, so they won't even come out with anywhere near that amount of debt. And then we can mm. help them take a, take care of some of it, if not all of it, on the back end. Wow! So it seems like you're still working out innovative ways to to achieve your goals as a group. Yeah. So I started in this role January fourth during the pandemic too. What a great, what an easy time to start anything. But so you're you're really in a point of 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 just getting on your feet on this in this role and figuring it out. Yeah. But you know, actually, the one good thing about the pandemic is like I think everything actually gets expedited. Because now, like, you have access to people across the country, and it's a lot more efficient. So, like, before you, I was just in a meeting one minute before, and now I'm here. There's no way we're going to do that unless people are, like, lined up outside of my office just waiting to start. Yeah, I guess, what are, what are your plans to scale your operation at this point, or thoughts? Yeah, I, th- I think my thought is, like, you have to be strategic. And I think a lot of organizations, especially ones that have success early, get in trouble by trying to grow too fast. Sometimes funders will push you to grow too fast. And that's one thing I'm really trying to be um, intentional about, taking our time. And um, it's tough because naturally I'm I'm a pretty impatient person. I'm like, let's go. I'm trying to be there now. Um, But with this, I I want us to take our time. I'm trying to be intentional with how we even grow our partner schools. We have six right now. We need to be at eight. I'm not in a rush. I want to make sure that all the kinks are worked out before I take this anywhere. And so I think one day, like I do, I'm a pretty ambitious person. I would like to see it nationally, but everything's contingent upon the need. If there's another movement, there's an organization out in Philadelphia called the Center for Black Educator Development, and they have a national movement going on that just began. If they're in the cities that need it, I'm not going to come in right behind them and be like, here, we're going to reproduce these things. So I don't know what it looks like in the future. I just want to make sure that we get like our product as refined as possible. And of course, if, if that means like we get it down and it feels and people are coming. I mean, honestly, people have already reached out to us about, are you willing to expand? I mean, I just started. It's so back to the sort of the broader issue. What if there are folks out there in the audience who um, you know, want to uh, feel like this issue is important. There may be a school leader or in education somehow. Um, what What are your recommendations for, um, you know, for for what folks can do or how people can, uh, you know, kind of address this issue? Mm, that's such a tough question because, I mean, even this issue for me can be like 12 different things. So I think our organization does a lot. Um, at the community level and so I think maybe the most obvious thing is like teacher diversity is what we do but also like culture climate is part of it so there's there's different issues that you're facing and what do you mean by that distinction between the teacher diversity and the culture can you say more about that yeah so I think one of the issues that we like most directly um, work on is teacher diversity 
And I mean, our organization is about getting more black men into the classroom. But in order to do that, one of the issues we have to tackle, one of the issues I think about all the time, how do we have a culture and a climate in a school that's conducive to retaining these men? One thing I don't want to do is integrate people into a burning house, right? Like as MLK said. And so it feels like there's some of that that exists now. And so how do we bring the fire hose to put that out and then start building infrastructures that really are supportive? So that, that is a big issue that I see. And that's like part of what our work is here to do to help um, manage. Of course, like directly, we're here to produce black teachers. But another issue I think about again, which is like probably the most fundamental, the core thing is like, how do we make equitable conditions for our students? And so I think part of that is an equitable representation representation of teachers. But we also got to make sure like these students are successful. And I feel like that's the indirect way of doing it. So I'm probably conflating this question now and making it more difficult to parse. But everything depends on who the person is, right? Like if you're a school leader, you should think about what are you doing to create a culture in a school that is equitable for everybody, makes everybody feel comfortable? Because black teachers have one of the highest attrition rates out of any teacher group. And it's not because of the students. So what's going on in that building, that adult culture? Right. How are we like actively working to resolve unconscious bias? Like, what are we doing in that world? What are we doing to center the identity of some of these people and be like really equitable. If you're a teacher and you have like actual students, like, like black, brown students in your classroom, how are they being represented in what they're learning? Like education is as is as, as it is now in general, it's just like people term it as windows and mirrors. Like black and brown students are always looking through this window into other people's reality. And everything you learn is through this this lens that centers whiteness for the most part when is it your turn to see a mirror right if you're a teacher think about that how well do you understand where your students come from how much time do you spend where you're not the expert and the leader right have you ever been in positions where you're in their culture and community and they're the ones who are experts and you're the the one who's the quote-unquote student and so so a lot of things to think about, a lot of issues that exist, and it depends on what your role is. Um, yeah, and it seems like putting out the fire would also involve not creating those moments that you say are so typical at the moment where a student might encounter a kind of, you know, kind of formatively negative, in a, and that's putting it, you know, bureaucratically, but a, a terrible, you know, kind of something that like turns them off of this experience and that's going against their getting an education. And yeah. And like, again, I hear stories every day um, from my men. It's just, it's hard. Like everyone has a story. That's the thing I know. Everyone has a story. It hasn't gone away. In other words, the idea of somebody might get accused of stealing their own bike, that, that could still happen today. For sure, it happens all the time. It probably happens at my school under my nose. And yeah. obviously not at the hand of me, or at least I will hope not. But um, sure. it just happens. It's it's an experience that I've just talked to enough black men who are in this space to know, like, this is it's a rite of passage to have something 
some form of school-induced trauma occur in your lifetime that you just don't forget. Yeah. And two, we could talk about the data too. Like in a place like Minnesota, black students are eight times more likely to be suspended and expelled. Right? They represent ten yeah. percent of the student population with forty-two percent of the discipline incidences. Extremely overrepresented in that. Yeah. It's tough. How how hopeful are you that systemic change can come or meaningful change can come on these issues that we've talked about today? You know, I'm a natural optimist, so I do think it can change. Uh, I, I think it's a matter of time. Um, I think like a place like Minnesota is actually a place that should be the first thing, place looking to change because the outcomes are so disparate and it's so obvious. And in Minnesota right now, it's the hub when it comes to like this focus on equity and justice. Um, yeah. Given the murder of George Floyd and Dante Wright, right? And so this is a place where it's like, this is where the work really needs to be done. And everything that's happened in the past year has really put that at the forefront. It's also a place that has the resources to make it happen. Right. It's the reason Minneapolis has the most nonprofits per capita. The money is here. Even in education, there's a lot of places that want Minnesota's f- education funded for their schools. So it's it, this is the place that it's like the back is against the wall. And so there's a lot of conditions that are, are a lot of systems and structures in place right now that will try to maintain systems as is. But I also think that there's so many people who are motivated and inspired to see change that think things will be different. And what's the what do you think is the biggest potential barrier? <laughs> the gatekeepers, the same people that have been there while these statistics have existed. Everything I said today ain't new. If you've been in education in Minnesota, you've known these things for the past decade. Yeah. And they ain't did anything yet. They haven't done anything yet. Right. It's because right. a lot of people benefit for things being like this. And the gatekeepers have not changed. Some of them probably don't want to see a change, so. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you helping to bring bring attention and focus these problems for our listeners today and for sharing the solutions you're you're working on. So thank you so much. Yeah, no problem. This has been the Ed Surge Podcast. To learn more about Black Men Teach and other groups working to diversify the teaching workforce, Sign up for the free EdSurge podcast newsletter. Just go to edsurge.com and click on newsletters at the top right. If you like this podcast, please take a minute to give us a rating, a review, or better yet, tell folks about the podcast on social media. And thanks to all of you who have done that recently. We really appreciate it. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young. And you can find me on Twitter at JRYoung. Music this episode by Kevin McLeod. We found that on the Free Music Archive. We'll be back next week with more on how education is changing. Thanks for listening.